Let's pray together and then we'll read the scriptures together. Holy Father, it really and truly is good to be together in your house. And we do recognize that it is you who gather us when we gather. And that you are indeed with us by your spirit when we gather. You promised that. You sent your spirit out on your people on the day of Pentecost in fulfillment of the prophecies in Joel. You poured out your spirit on male and female, old and young, all those who have called upon the name of the Lord for their salvation. And you have promised to be with us always, even to the end of the age. And you are with us by your spirit. You are empowering your church. We are not perfect. Your church has never been perfect. Our perfection awaits glory when we are fully glorified and in your presence. But you are shaping and you are forming us into the kind of people that you have created, called, and redeemed us to be. And so I pray now this morning, Lord, I just have a picture in my head of how so often fire is associated with the Holy Spirit, and I picture the coals of the Holy Spirit burning in our hearts. I just pray that you would blow the wind of your Spirit and fan those coals into flame. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, Philippians and chapter 2. We've been in there for a few weeks now, and we will continue that journey through the, through the summer, however long it takes. I'm not sure yet. Philippians 2 and verses 12 to 17. Actually, 12 to 18. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation." among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. And likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. I think if you've been around over the years, you've probably heard me say that if you're, if you're, if you're doing an in-depth Bible study, studying God's word, usually the best place to start is with the verbs. Look for the verbs. Begin your study of God's word with the verbs, because the verbs drive the action. The verbs tell you who's doing what, or at least who is supposed to be doing what. Whenever I start studying a passage, uh, getting ready for a Sunday, I begin by pulling out the verbs, looking at the verbs. The rest of the sentence, which is obviously also important, the rest of the sentence, like the subject and the uh, the, the indirect object, the adjectives, the adverbs, uh, those all revolve around the verbs. 
So this morning, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull four verbs from our text. I'm going to make those four verbs the four main points of the sermon. Those aren't the only verbs in the passage, but they, these are the ones that carry the load throughout this text. The first verb is, uh, is the main point, and we're going to spend almost all of our time there. And then the three others, they kind of flow out of that, flow out of the first one, and we can deal with them quite briefly. The verbs are, I'll just tell you now, uh, the, the first one is work. The second one is shine. The third one is hold fast. I know that's two words in English, but it's only one in the original. One word, hold fast. Uh, and the fourth one is rejoice. Okay? Those are our main points. Those are our verbs we're going to focus on. Work, shine, hold fast, and rejoice. Work is the main verb. It's, uh, it it kind of uh, sets the theme for the whole passage. Uh, it, it occurs in a notoriously difficult to interpret verse. Verse 12 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Okay, that's, that's not hard to understand. He's saying, Obey. I know you obey when I'm around, but I want you to also obey when I'm not around. Okay, but what, then what does he say? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What does that mean? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I'm going to come back to that verb work in a second, but we need to begin with the first word of this verse, which is the word therefore. Therefore. What, what is that word therefore? Right? Therefore is a word, whenever you see the word therefore, it always looks back, and then it looks forward. Okay? That's what therefore does. It looks back, and then it looks forward. Right? There, the word therefore means, okay, in the light of what I've just said, this is what follows. Okay? So for example, just to give an example, I might say to my kids, the garbage in the kitchen is overflowing. Therefore, after dinner, I want you to take it out. Okay? The therefore points back to the overflowing garbage, and it points forward to what it is that I want them to do about it. That's how therefore works. Looks back, points forward. Okay, so let's see what this therefore is there for. Paul says, therefore, in verse 12. That therefore needs to be looking back at something. When he says therefore in verse 12, he's looking back at the awesome obedience of Jesus, the Son of God, that he has just spent time describing. Right? Jesus, who did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but gave all that up in order to come to earth and take on flesh and be a servant and die for us and be resurrected. Therefore, in the light of all of that, in the light of his obedience that resulted in your salvation, therefore, you should live lives that are marked by Christ-like obedience. In the light of his obedience, you obey. Therefore, as, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but also in my abs absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's how Paul frames this exhortation. In the light of the gift of salvation that has been secured for you through Christ's obedience, you work out that salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, but here's, here's the big question. What, what is the verb work doing there? 
What does it mean to work out our salvation? It cannot mean, it cannot mean earn your salvation. Right? Because Paul has just referred to the fact that our salvation was earned by Christ's obedience and his death on the cross. Okay? So what does it mean if it doesn't mean that? Well, let me, let me try an analogy. I always find analogies helpful to, to get at these things. And so imagine, imagine a wedding. Imagine, let's just imagine a wedding here at Ebenezer and I, I'm officiating at it. And it, let's just picture a lovely ceremony. And all the groomsmen, they usually stand over here and just picture them there. They're looking better, let's be honest, better than they ever have before in their whole entire lives. The, the father now, the door's closed, the music changes, the door's open, the father comes in with the bride, they walk down, we rise, she comes looking beautiful, they come forward, the service then continues, God's holy word is read, songs are sung, vows are made, documents are signed, and now comes the pronouncement. Right? That's when I stand here and I say, so and so and so and so have today been joined together in holy wedlock because they have exchanged their vows before God and before these witnesses, have pledged their commitment to each other, and have declared the same by joining hands and by exchanging rings. I now pronounce them husband and wife. Those whom God has joined together, let no one put asunder. Those are the traditional words. Those are, that's the traditional pronouncement. Now, I could easily follow those words. I never have, but maybe the next wedding I do, I will. I could follow those words with this. Today, you have received the gift of marriage. Therefore, go and work out your marriage in fear and trembling. Do you see? Do you see? It's, it's a gift. God is the one who unites the husband and the wife in Christian marriage. It is a gift given to us, right? What God has joined together. I didn't do it. They didn't do it. You didn't do it. God did it. God does the joining. But the gift of marriage comes with a responsibility to work it out. Work it out. It's your gift. You didn't earn it. You didn't make it. You didn't do it. It's your gift. But work it out. Work it out daily on an ongoing basis. Paul purposefully uses that word work there, I think, to emphasize that this takes purposeful and intentional effort. Right? That's true in marriage. It takes effort. It takes work. It's true in our salvation as well. We're not earning it. It's a gift. But we've got to work it out. It takes effort. Listen, any couple in a healthy, happy marriage will tell you that marriage is work, right? That's why you laughed when I said it, right? It's work. It is work. We know that it's work. It's good work. It's blessed work. It's joyful work, but work nonetheless. And if you enter into marriage expecting that it'll be easy all the time, then it will not take you long before you become disillusioned. And like so many people in our culture, they hit that point and they say, hey, this is hard. I thought it would be easy, but it's hard. I'm out of here. This is not what I signed up for. See, the whole point of premarital counseling, as I understand it, is to prepare the couple for that moment. Right? Probably, depending on the couple, probably about three months in. Right? All of a sudden, the couple realizes, wait a minute. This is work. 
And at that moment, hopefully they'll remember, oh yeah, this is exactly what Pastor Jason was talking about. Marriage is both hard and good at the same time. Some things are like that. Both hard and good at the same time. Marriage is a blessing, but it is the kind of blessing that you need to work at it in order to experience it. And the the extent to which you will be blessed by your marriage is directly proportional to your willingness to work at it. So work out your marriage with fear and trembling. I think that's exactly what the Apostle Paul here is saying about our salvation. Our salvation is a gift. It has been secured for us by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, and we receive this gift by grace through faith. That's a blessing. But the extent to which we will experience that blessing on a daily and ongoing basis will depend on our willingness to work it out, to work at it. Not, not, not to work at earning our salvation. You don't, you don't earn something that's already been paid for. But to work at experiencing it. And how do we do that? Well, that's exactly why, I think, Paul referred back to the obedience of Christ. Just as Christ secured your salvation through his obedience, you will work out your salvation and experience the blessing of it through your obedience. I think that's how that works. And we are to do so with fear and trembling. Why? Why the fear and the trembling, right? Why not just the work? That's sort of an antiquated phrase, right? Fear and trembling. A rough parallel to that phrase, fear and trembling, would be awe. Work out your salvation with awe. Although I'm not sure we know what that means anymore either. Anytime we interact with God, or even talk about God, or sing to God, or think about obeying God, we should do so with awe, with fear and with trembling. I'm often uncomfortable with people who want to who debate about the nature of God. I used to, that used to happen all the time when I was at seminary. People want to debate God, debate well, who is God, what is he like. Well, That's fine. Those are worthy conversations. But let's do that with a little fear and trembling. (laughs) Let's not talk about God in a flippant way. Let's talk about God. But let's do so with fear and trembling. With a sense of awe. Paul here is quoting Psalm 2. Psalm 2, which says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Why in the world would anyone do that? Why why would we serve the Lord with fear? Why would we rejoice with trembling? You don't usually think of rejoicing with trembling. Well, because God is awesome. That's why. And when we come into the presence of an awesome God, it should fill us with awe. awe. Awe is not something that we do especially well these days, I don't think. As collectively, as a church in the West... I think that the church in the West right now is pretty good with the concept of Jesus as our friend. We do that well. There are passages in the Bible that that emphasize relating to God that way, and they're precious, and we need to take them seriously. Right? Multiple times, God says, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. There's a relational intimacy there that's personal and precious. Jesus referred to his disciples as friends. We are included in that. 
friends of Jesus, right? That's precious. But we need to balance that with other verses in the Bible that say things like that the Lord is a consuming fire. That say that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That say, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. That's Psalm 2 again. Those passages and hundreds of others like them in our Bibles remind us just how awesome and holy and glorious God is and how appropriate it is to respond with fear and trembling when we come into his presence, whenever we approach his throne, whenever we dare to raise our voices and sing songs to him, which we should do. We should do so with fear and with trembling. And when a personal and powerful God reaches down and places something sacred in your hands, that should produce fear and trembling in us. Think of parents, parents, think about the first time. Can you, can you remember, if you're a parent, can you remember the first time the doctor or the nurse handed your firstborn child to you? Do you remember that moment when that sacred life, that sacred thing was placed in your hands, both literally, you're holding that little person, but also metaphorically, that little life is in your hands now. Do you remember the feeling at that moment? It's complicated, right? It's bursting with joy, but it's also fear and trembling, if you're anything like me. How, how, uh, this is awesome. How am I going to do this? <laughs> I can't raise this child. I don't even know how to change a diaper. What is happening here? Right? And then, but then over time, step by step, you work it out. Right? Despite the fact that you feel overwhelmed and underqualified, and which, with much reliance on prayer and on others, you work it out. Parenting is a sacred gift that God gives. And with that gift comes responsibility to work it out. And we do so with fear and trembling. And we do so with help from the Lord. And with help from others. And in a similar way, God secures our salvation and hands it to us and says, Here, this sacred thing, this is for you. And with it comes responsibility, so work it out. That should fill us with fear and trembling. But step by step, we move forward, not perfectly, but faithfully, and with much reliance on prayer and on others. We work out our salvation day by day through faithful obedience to God. And Paul immediately follows that. He just says, and by the way, lest you experience some measure of success and you start to feel like taking credit for your faithfulness and you think, look at me, I'm working out my salvation. Paul reminds us it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Right? So both your desire to be obedient and your ability to be obedient come from God. All right, that's the word work. I think that, that's what Paul's getting at when he tells us to work out our salvation. Now, much more briefly, we can look at these verbs that flow out of that. Shine and hold fast and rejoice. As we work out our salvation with fear and trembling through our obedience to God, we will shine as lights in the world among this crooked and twisted generation. Which crooked and twisted generation is Paul talking about there? He's writing in the first century. 
Is he talking about first century Rome? Yes, he is. They were crooked and twisted. Well, what about the second century? Were they, were they better? Nope. Still crooked and still twisted. Well, what about the fourth century? In the fourth century, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Surely they weren't so crooked and twisted then. No, actually they were crooked and twisted. Well, what about the 18th century? The Enlightenment. Right? We got things a little straighter then, didn't we? Weren't they at least better than in the first century when Paul was writing? No, they weren't. Paul's description applies to every generation, crooked and twisted. Ah, but surely you don't mean to suggest that in the modern 21st century, we're just as morally backwards as they were in the first century. Well, first of all, it doesn't matter what I'm suggesting. What the Bible teaches is that the problem with humanity is not limited to a particular time or a particular location, but it is a problem that runs right through the timeline of the history of humanity because it runs right through the heart of men and women. I have have an atheist friend who used to say to me, he's passed away now, but he used to say to me that humanity is, is is on a moral upward curve. Right? We're not perfect, he'd be the first one to say that, but we're moving in the right direction and we're getting better and better as the generations and as the centuries go on. We're getting better and better. We're learning as we go. Are we? What does the Bible say about that? The Bible says that every generation is crooked and twisted because, to use a phrase from the Bible, By our unrighteousness, we suppress the truth. That's what the Bible says about us. By our unrighteousness, we suppress the truth. Our sins, our crookedness, our twistedness might be different than it was in first century Rome. But we're not less crooked and twisted. It's what we naturally do. And because of that tendency, those of us who are working out our salvation with fear and trembling by God's grace and with His help We shine as lights in the world. That's what Paul says. The image Paul gives is of stars shining in the dark night sky. Stars are obviously beautiful. They stand out from the darkness when you look up at the night. Paul looked up at the same stars that you and I look up at. But also remember that in Paul's pre-GPS days, the stars were, were, they were beautiful, but they were also used for navigation. The stars oriented you. The stars pointed you where you needed to go. Christians who are working out their salvation with fear and trembling by God's grace are supposed to shine like that in the world. We are supposed to live lives that are morally beautiful, like stars, but we are also supposed to live lives that help orient others, that point to God, that help people navigate their way to God. So that's shine. The next verb is hold, hold fast. Hold fast to what? Paul says hold fast to the word of life. Hold fast to the word of life. You cannot work out your salvation with fear and trembling without holding fast to God's word. This is the word of life. We're supposed to hold fast to this as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Well, because as Paul said earlier, the way that we work out our salvation is through obedience 
to God. I'll say it again. Not earn our salvation. It's been given to us. But work it out. Live it out. It's through obedience to God. And the way that we know what God wants of us is because He's revealed it to us in His Word. And so we need to hold fast to the Word of life. This is our life. The Word of life. If we don't If we don't hold fast to it, it's going to have a tendency to slip out of our hands. Not because it's slippery. It's not. But because if if we're not holding fast to it, then we'll drop it when we want to go and grab onto something else. And So Paul uses the phrase word of life in order to emphasize the life-giving power of God's word. Right? You picture being overboard tossed overboard on a ship and you're, you're, in a, you're in a storm-tossed sea and then someone throws you a life preserver, right? You're going to grab that thing and you're going to hold fast. The waves will swell. They might even break over your head. But the one thing you're not going to do is loosen your grip on that life-giving life preserver. That's the image that Paul's giving us. Hold fast to the word of life. This is our lifeline to God amidst the sea of troubles that we experience in the world. A few years ago, I was in a room full of pastors listening, and I was listening to a retired pastor speak, a pastor who had spent decades preaching, preaching from this book. And he said, uh, what he said, he said he couldn't wait, he was drawing near to the end of his life, and he couldn't wait to get to heaven and to get into the presence of the Lord so that he could be done with the Bible. Now, on the one hand, that sounds very pious to say, well, I'd rather have God than the Bible. But I immediately thought to myself when I heard that, well, wait a minute. The Bible itself tells us that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now, if forever means forever in that verse, I'm pretty sure it does, then we're not going to pitch our Bibles aside when we get to heaven. The Word of God is going to be with us in heaven. The Word of God endures forever. And in the meantime, on our journey to heaven, this is not supposed to be something that we can't wait to get rid of, that we can't wait to pitch it aside and be done with. This is our lifeline to God on our journey to heaven. Which is why Paul tells us to hold fast to the word of life. Final verb. Final verb. We talked about work. We talked about shine. We talked about hold fast. Final verb is one of the recurring themes in the book of Philippians. Rejoice. Our lives should be marked by rejoicing. Our lives, my life and your life, should be marked by an underlying foundational joy in all circumstances. Paul, as we know, is under house arrest when he's writing this letter. He feels his own life being poured out on behalf of others as a sacrifice for others. And yet he writes, I'm glad and I rejoice with you and you should be glad and rejoice with me. If our lives are not marked by joy, we're doing something wrong. Now, I, I know, I know full well that joy is not an emotion that you can just flip it on and flip it off like a light switch. Joy is a byproduct. Right? Joy is the byproduct of a life of faithful obedience. 
So often we think of following the rules as something that takes away our joy. Right? In my own clumsy, silly way, that's what I was trying to convey to our kids in that Paco and Isabel story. Right? So often we think of the rules are the things that kill our joy. Right? And joy is when we can break free the rules and do what we want. That is not the message of the Bible. That is not the message we should be teaching our children. That's not the message we should be telling ourselves. We're told, I mean, you've heard this. I, I'm sure you've heard this. We, Christianity is, is not a list of rules. Christianity is a relationship. It's not about rules. It's about relationship with God. Listen, you've heard that, right? Can I, can I humbly suggest to us this morning that that is a totally unhelpful and false dichotomy? May I suggest that it is the rules that enable us to experience the fullness of blessing and joy in our relationships, that our relationships to be healthy need rules, that that's how God set up the world, and that that's how relationships work with one another and with Him. Think again about what it means to work out your marriage in fear and trembling. Right? Marriage is a blessing. Marriage is a relationship. And marriage comes with rules. And if you want to experience the fullness of the blessing of the relationship in marriage... You need to honor and obey the rules. Right? One of the blessings of marriage is the gift of sexual intimacy. Right? And the surest way to destroy the blessing of that gift is to break the rules of fidelity and commit adultery. That kind of rule-breaking destroys the blessing. The blessing comes in the context of rules. It is through the rule-keeping that we experience the joy. The rules in marriage aren't just that, right? They include honoring each other, serving each other, listening to each other, laying down our lives for each other, right? We make those vows when we get married. What are vows? They're rules that we promise to keep. And those rules aren't designed to be a burden. Those rules aren't designed to to turn marriage into a joyless and impersonal contract. Just the opposite. The rules create the context for the relationship to thrive and flourish that we might experience the fullness of joy and blessing. Same thing in our marriage to Christ. Same thing. Right? The Bible says we're the bride, he's the bridegroom. And there are rules in our covenant relationship. I know it's not a popular way to talk these days. I know we're not in the habit of thinking of rules as a source of joy and blessing. But that is what they are. What we're told in our culture is that forget the rules, just follow your heart. Follow your heart, follow where it leads you, do whatever makes you happy. That is the path to self-fulfillment and blessing and joy. Just do what your heart tells you. Listen, that would be great advice. That would be spot on if our hearts were pure and Christ-like. But they're not. We're told by our culture that people who like rules... Those are the boring people. Those are the people who like taking orders. Those are the people who don't have the courage to be true to themselves. Now listen, let's be clear here. Not all rules are good. Not all rules are worthy of being followed. We don't follow rules just for the sake of following rules. I get that. But let's just take the Apostle Paul as our example. Paul's epistles are full of joy, right? He's the apostle of joy. His joy in Christ, his joy in others, it just leaps off the page when you read his letters. 
And yet his letters are also full of commandments and rules from God. There is a connection there. Paul's obedience to God's rules was not a hindrance to his joy. It was a source of his joy. And that same joy is available to you and I. So the next time you hear someone say, I don't want rules, I just want a relationship. Tell them they don't have to choose. In fact, tell them they can't have the one without the other. The rules create the context for a joyful, loving, safe, thriving relationship. That's how we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Through faithful, joyful, covenant obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you have blessed us in so many ways. We could never count or even consider all the different ways that you've rained blessing upon us. One of which is the commandments that you have issued in your holy word, the word of life. You've given us guidelines, instructions, rules, commandments. And these rules create the context for us to relate rightly to you in a loving, faithful, safe, covenant relationship. And so I pray that we would receive that as the gift that it is, and that we would walk in joyful and faithful obedience to you all the days of our lives. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.